If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. I'm Kim Hakem, your host. If this is your first time tuning into the show, welcome to another episode of And Security for All. I hope you all had a great week. We are into the first week of March. How did January and February go so fast? But here we are. Um, I think, what is this? I should even know. I think it's March 2nd, um, March 3rd. Today, um, I'm home in the Midwest, St. Louis to be exact. And if you hear some roaring, roaring winds, um, we are in the middle of a huge rain and windstorm. This morning on the news, they were like, don't, don't be surprised if trees are going to come down. I happen to live in a hundred-year-old house, so I have some very old trees. So let's hope I don't get any tree branches coming through the window during this show. And let's hope that my power does not go out because that tends to happen. But um, I'm just joking. Hopefully, um, you know, hopefully wherever you are, the weather is great. But I have to say the weather has been so crazy. Our company, FutureCon, we travel all over North America to about we go to about 30 cities across, you know, across the United States and we're heading to Montreal um, next month. And I have no, um, I never have any idea now. You used to know when you were traveling what the weather was going to be like. Now you really have to look at the forecast in order to know what to bring because this climate, the change of the climate is crazy. Last week, um, we had our annual cybersecurity conference in Washington, D.C. I flew in. It was about 40 degrees. And then the next day was our event, and they hit the high of 80. It was like record-breaking in February for Fortune for Washington, D.C. Of course, that's not always, you know, that wasn't really great for us um, because people wanted to be outside on the news or said, enjoy this day. You know, we may not have it for a while. Um, luckily, we have some very loyal attendees in Washington, D.C. They came out. And we had a great um, event, but we do run our events in a hybrid mode, and we did have you know, some of our people that opted to watch us virtually, probably so they could sit outside and enjoy the weather. But then that night, I flew home and it dropped right back down to 40. So crazy times with weather. I heard it snowed in La Los Angeles last week. So I'm sure, um, I don't know if that's good or bad. I would think out there, maybe they think that's a little fun. I, I heard it's a little, it was a little towards the mountains, but um, crazy times we live in with this climate of you never know what it's going to be. Today it's freezing, but Sunday I'm planning on playing golf because we're getting back up to the 70s. I think today it's like 30. So, so wherever you are, I hope you're enjoying the ups and downs of the weather and staying healthy during it. This kind of uh, weather definitely messes with your immune system, so you really need to stay on top of it and stay healthy. At any rate, today's show is not about the weather. I have another great guest on today's show, 
And um, he is from a company that's participated in several of our cybersecurity events across North America. I have um, Carl Wright. He's a chief commercial officer at um, Attack IQ. Carl is a seasoned entrepreneur and executive with experience in security, storage, virtualization, and software sectors. Prior to uh, joining Attack IQ, he um, had different operation roles at several different security companies, and he contributed to the rapid growth of the accusation from Microsoft Network Appliance and Secure Compu Computing. He has extensive experience in all aspects of enterprise information technology. My favorite part of him is that um, he was a Chief Information Security Officer in the U.S. Marine Corps. I am ex-U.S. Navy, so we always love the Marine Corps, so always happy to have a veteran on the show. Today, we're going to discuss implementing a threat-informed defense so organizations can start moving from being reactive to proactive in their cybersecurity practices. So again, for everyone out there, uh, we would love any of your input. So we hope that you drop your comments in the chat. And with that being said, welcome to the show, Carl. Great. Thank you, Kim. I'm, I'm greatly appreciated to be here. Well, thanks for being here. And again, uh, kudos for um, being in the Marine Corps. And I find it really interesting, your title in the Marine Corps, because back when I was in the Navy, which would probably age me a bit, I don't think we had anything that was a chief information security officer. I don't even know if that existed back then. So tell us a little bit about your Marine Corps history and how you ended up in that role. Well, you know, I started the Marine Corps as a mainframe officer running COBOL programming shops. So uh, that was way before there was IP. Uh, and so we had what we called SNA networks and lots of mainframe and lots of people programming in low level system level language called COBOL and Fortran and a bunch of things like that. As the Marine Corps um, moved from big box iron mainframe to distributed client server architectures, and IP networks, it kind of created a um, whole new opportunity for the Marine Corps uh, to you know, bring uh, IT capability to the battlefield, but also introduce a lot of new risk that wasn't there with closed uh, mainframe networks. And so my time in the Marine Corps was really at a pivotal time where we deployed the very first firewalls, the very first intrusion detection, the very first, I mean, the list of firsts goes on as people rapidly adopted IP networking in the late 1990s. So how did you work with the other, um, and you know, like the Navy and, I mean, were, were you all working together because this was kind of a new, I, I happened to be, when I was in the military, I was on a nuclear base in Coronado, which you might be familiar with, but um, did you work? And, you know, there were several Marines. I mean, it was, it was a, it, it was where the aircraft carriers came in. So um, were you yeah. working with the other branches when like all this was kind of starting to develop and it rapidly had to develop because you guys had to protect the country, not only physically, but, you know, um, internally. Right. Well, and apologies. I've got a couple Labrador retrievers here barking, but um, you're, you're absolutely right. Look, the Marine Corps, um, more so than any other service uh, supporting Department of Defense has always had to be joint. Um, we have always had to 
make sure that you know we can work closely um, with our brothers and sisters in the Navy, uh, in the Air Force, uh, and in, in the Army, and other folks that support the Department of Defense. And so we've always had this joint focus. But you know, in the early days of IP, it was uh, wild, wild west, quite frankly. Um, and you know, uh, most services in the Department of Defense did not take an enterprise approach to IT. Every base post and station basically ran their own information technology and management capabilities. And uh, even things like management of IP addresses was not done centrally. I really had the benefit uh, of being uh, a senior operator and a security official for the, for the Marine Corps during those innovative days when people were trying to figure out how to take advantage of IP and routed networks. And we did, since mainframe days, always take a centralized approach. So when the Marine Corps started to, uh, to adopt IP, when it started to adopt um, technologies that would ride on top of IP routed networks and cybersecurity, we took a enterprise approach from the, the very first day. So we had 32 different base posts and stations in the Marine Corps globally, whether it was Okinawa, Japan, or Korea, or Europe, or throughout North America, wherever it might be, that were all managed, both from an IT perspective as well as a cyber perspective in Quantico, Virginia. So we, we are, the way that we were organized um, and being smaller, only 182,000 people in the Marine Corps, put us in a much better position to take an enterprise approach to both information technology and cybersecurity. So then, um how long did you spend in the Marine Corps? So I was in for 11 years, uh, went in uh, as a second lieutenant and 11 years later got out as a, uh, a major. And then I was lucky enough during my time uh, for the Marine Corps to send me to work on my master's at the Naval Postgraduate School and then my PhD in cybersecurity at uh, George Mason University in the Virginia area. Well, congratulations on all that, and thank yeah. you for your service in the Marine Corps. That sounds like you were doing some really big things um, in the Marine Corps. So, you, so you come out of the Marine Corps, then you know you're you're going to work on more education. What, what was your? Tell us a little bit of your career path and how you ended up at Attack IQ, and then we'll kind of dive into a little bit of yeah. what we're going to discuss. That's a great question. I think so many people in the cybersecurity community today are working on career pathing. Like, you know, I'm here today, I wanna to get to this other place later, whether it's a CISO or whatever the job is. And so I, I, I always value that question highly. And, you know, for me, I started off on the technology side, mainframes, as we talked about, distributed client server architectures, and then operations of large networks that supported, you know, 400,000 users and 270 uh, data centers. And so I, I come from a, a IT background and managing kind of large networks. And that really provided a foundational education and operations to me in understanding what, what doesn't and doesn't work at scale, let alone how to secure all those type of things at scale. And so, so one of the things I always counsel all cybersecurity professionals on is like, yes, your job is to be a cybersecurity professional, but the reality is you need to understand what you're defending. You need to understand how those application environments work. You need to understand 
how the network works. You need to understand lots of information technology things in order to be the best possible cybersecurity professional. But my career intent was always after the Marine Corps to go up to Wall Street and be a Wall, Wall Street CISO. I had lots of friends up there. But, you know, in my uh, days that I was looking to transition out of military service, I met a gentleman that forever changed my life. His name was Dr. Tahir Elgamal. He's very well known in the cybersecurity world. He was uh, the chief scientist at Netscape. He invented SSL. He invented a number of other protocols that we use on a daily basis, such as SET, Secure Electronic Transfer, uh, Transfer Protocol, Elliptical Curve Cartography, which is how all your cell phones connect to the cell phone towers. And so he'd asked me to come out and uh, work with him on a cybersecurity startup out of Silicon Valley. And to be honest with you, uh, coming out of the Department of Defense and Intelligence community, I knew about companies out there, but I really didn't know what it was all about. But that was my that was my entree into the career I've had the last 20 years, which is focused on early stage cybersecurity technology and bringing that to market. So, because it's very interesting to see people that have, um, you know, came out of the military, many of them are on the enterprise side. And then, you know, someone like you who's on the vendor side, was there a, was it just because of, I, I, I don't want to mess up the name of, but I definitely need to look him up and find out about him because I don't sure. know about him. But is that why you went more on this side of the spectrum of cybersecurity? Uh, it, it was really a, a combination of two things. And, and certainly the people we meet in our life always influence kind of what's happening in real time tactically, right? And if we're lucky enough to keep meeting amazing people, then you know, uh, your equation of what you want to do has an opportunity to change. Um, but when I was in the Marine Corps, uh, the CIO of the Marine Corps, uh, uh, General Shea, who I worked for, went on to become the J-6, uh, Lieutenant General Shea of uh, Department of Defense. He told me he wanted me to build the shining star of DOD. And, and when I went to do that, I looked at all the existing business partners um, that the Marine Corps had, and they're Companies with names you're very familiar with, you know, system integrators uh, like Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman, Computer Science Corporation, SAIC, the list goes on. And what I noticed about these system integrators is they always showed up with the business relationships they had, which didn't necessarily mean it was the potentially best solution for the Marine Corps. And so uh, very early during that period, I started going out to the Valley and meeting with venture capital firms and new emergent technologies uh, to see if there was a, a need, uh, a capability that could be applied to the Marine Corps. And, and my lens, uh, the way I looked at this was a little bit unique. Um, FedEx doesn't deliver to the battlefield. And so if I was going to deploy a new emergent capability in Garrison, we also deployed the same cybersecurity capability in a deployed tactical environment where FedEx doesn't necessarily deliver. And so the solutions I picked need to be able to be owned and operated by 18-year-old Marines um, that have very limited training and knowledge, skills, and abilities. And so, so as I was in the Valley, it turned out that I procured, deployed, owned, and operated about 12 technologies that were early stage, ones you guys have heard of, F5 as an example, 
network appliance, as an example, um, you know, and a bunch of other ones, ISS, internet security systems, Tiscotland Firewall, and all these companies went on <clears throat> to either go public or get bought for a billion dollars by other, other companies. And so it turned out I kind of had a knack uh, back in the early days for picking technologies that, um, you know, the world maybe would find valuable. Yeah, it's it's definitely been interesting because I've been in this industry about 25 years and this is my second company and my first company. It's it's just so interesting. Like a lot of people won't remember some of those companies because they have been bought out and those are just such old school names and boy, the money I could have made had I, had I been smarter and invested in some of those stocks of some of those companies. Well, you're, you're spot on that, Kim. And, you know, back then in the early 2000s, you know, a lot of the venture capital firms, a lot of the people that are super smart now, like underrated security portfolio products. They thought like the security thing, it's not as big as, you know, hyper-converged, you know, infrastructure or databases or whatever. I think when I look back to the early 2000s, I think um, the venture capital community grossly underrated the value of future cybersecurity stocks, um, number one. And number two, largely DOD was still doing a mass amount of R&D in that area. And they're buying a lot of GOTS products, government off the shelf versus commercial products. And it wasn't until I think the venture capital community started to heavily invest in cyber, that DOD started to take advantage of more commercial off-the-shelf products uh, versus uh, what they were developing in-house. I heard something really kind of comical on the, um, I was driving in my car just listening to the radio and it was one of those throwback stations that was doing like, this, is, this was the music popular 20 years ago and they'd have like a little commercial talking about what TV shows were popular and one of the things they said, did you buy Beanie Babies or Apple Stock? You know, and I'm like, yeah, I wish I would have bought that Apple Stock 20 years ago. Totally, <laughs> but, right? Yeah, but um, so now, you know, what What are you, you're with Attack IQ and so what is your focus? I mean, I, I know we're talking about you know, it seems, of course, everybody should be more proactive instead of reactive. And I think I, I've been doing, you know, this show for about a year and a half and I get a lot of great different type of speakers. And we talk about this all the time that there's still a huge amount of, there's still a large amount of companies out there that just think it's not going to happen to me. And, um, you know, I think, I think boards are taking it more serious because they don't want it to happen to them. And we were talking pre-show, you know, I had seen something, you know, about the um, U.S. Marshall attack this week, but I really haven't been around any of my cybersecurity experts because we haven't had a show this week. So I didn't see a lot. I really tried to dig into that. I didn't see a lot on that. I'm sure the, I'm sure my, my, the, all the other people that are the technical people know tons about that. But where do you think we stand as a nation as far as being proactive instead of reactive and keeping our organizations? I mean, where do you think we are and where do you think we still have to go? Well, you have like five amazing questions uh, in there. Um, so let me start at the nation level, right? And then we'll work our way down to the organization. Um, 
you know, I've been doing this for a long time, uh, both on the operations side and on the vendor side. I never thought I'd go to the vendor side because I always felt uh, I'm a mission-centric person. I always felt, you know, very tied to the mission, but I realized I could do some things on the vendor side to help lots of organizations versus just help one organization that maybe I was a CISO for. But, but let's back out of that for a second. I think we're in a world of shit, excuse my language. I think we're in trouble uh, as a nation, as a country, as a world. I think that the number, uh, the massive escalation cyber attacks, the sophistication of these cyber attacks is, is, at, is at a unparalleled uh, level where the op tempo is so poor that regardless of how well resourced uh, or so high, that regardless how well resourced organizations are, they don't have enough people, money, or, or treasure to uh, deal with the number of attacks. And, you know, the examples I like to give you on that is, you know, for years and years and years, the Chinese have been a massive problem. Um, stealing our intellectual property, whether it has been commercial organizations, or even when I was just with the Marine Corps, government uh, organizations with a massive attack called Moonlight Maze that most people will forget but you know, I was part of an intelligence community at the time where we observed the Chinese attacking and stealing information and did nothing about it because at the time we just wanted to monitor what their capabilities were and other things. And we did not alert you know, anybody that this attack was going on because um, of the way that we operated back then. And our government who's responsible for national defense is not defending our citizens from the Chinese or the Russians or the North Koreans or the Iranians. And so I, I personally even question what the, the definition of national defense is today when it becomes uh, to something called cyber. And I don't think it's fair to expect the average American citizen or corporation with limited amount of resources and capabilities who pay taxes to de defend themselves from nation state attacks. It's just not reasonable that they would have the capability maturity model or sophistication to protect themselves, uh, their their users, their shareholders uh, from nation states. So I, I said a lot there, Kim. I'm going to take a quick break and see if, if you want to dive into that at all. Well, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, we still have people that don't even know what a nation state attack is. I, I highly doubt that at the board level, I, you know, with a, you know, large enterprise companies, they certainly, I hope know. And it's just, um, we, we rarely see much, you know, um, Morgan Wright, who works for Sentinel one, he's a cybersecurity um, analyst. He's just kind of their intern CISO. And he, um, he is a Fox News correspondent. So occasionally, I mean, occasionally, I mean, like not very often will you see him come in on the news and talk about what's going on with cyber and um, not to get political, but that's usually the news station I watch. But um, I don't know what's happening on the other news stations, but we're just not talking about it as a nation. And then when we do have something that happens, you know, we're talking about little white you know, balloons in the sky, you know, yeah. we're focusing more on that, I believe, than we're fo focusing on the danger that we're under 
you know, people think I'm joking when I'm, you know, I kind of tell my family, make sure you keep water, a supply of water, keep some wood because there is, you know, I believe one day there is going to be an attack, you know, on our infrastructure. And I have some really amazing speakers that speak at our events. And I had, you know, the chief security officer um, over the state of California, northern state of California, who um, was worked for the water supply company. And, you know, I listen to this stuff and it really scares me. And I think that we should all be a little scared, uh, way more scared, not just a little scared. So what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you, are you worried about our infrastructure and, you know, where, I mean, I, I think, I know we talk about, you know, ransomware all the time and that's going to continue to happen, but I fear more about just, our infrastructure and do you feel like our government and the municipalities are too worried now some are some are like I hate to yeah. keep um, saying something before I let you talk because you know there's a group of people in Dallas that work for the municipalities that mm -hmm. I know very well that are the CISOs and you know they they're a great core they they have a group of people and they all work together but I can't imagine it's like that in every state across the yeah. United States well, I live in Whitefish, Montana. That's right. That's where I live. And you know, we saw the balloon first. And it, it's absolutely amazing <clears throat> that every American citizen under, understands that there's a balloon that does surveillance and, you know, is stealing information. And they're all upset about that when, you know, the amount of information and attacks that the Russian government uh, and Chinese government are perpetrating on us on a daily basis is the size of 100 balloons a day. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so if we want a good analogy in order of magnitude of the problem, you know, if everybody understands that balloon, just times it by a hundred every single day, right? And so so that is that's the real world we live in, and the commercial organizations, let alone our government entities that are here to provide those services, are responsible, you know, for first and foremost making money, saving lives prosecuting war, whatever their mission is, right? And and the fact is they're having to spend a lot of treasure to de defend themselves um, from these uh, bad actors that are out there that otherwise could go to helping people, uh, their shareholders, whatever it might be. And so what I hope is um, that our government gets more serious uh, about national defense from a cyber perspective and being much more proactive. But it, when it comes to this conversation and critical infrastructure, I'll share some anecdotal stories for you. I'm familiar of a municipality who runs a watershed, which means they run the water. And on the front website of the municipality, um, it tells you what the water level is, because as we know so much, weather is changing, water levels uh, in reservoirs is super important. The public wants to know about that water level. Um, and where do you think the data comes from to put it on the front website of the water level is? It comes from a, a, a industrial control system network on the backside <clears throat> that manages all the things uh, associated with that dam, if you would, whatever it might be. And there was a recent incident in the last couple of years where someone hacked a, a website of a municipality, used that from a transitive trust perspective, to travel to the ICS, uh, Industrial Control System Network that manages the dam and open up the dam and water flowed out, 
okay? So these type of things are very, very easy, uh, you know, for, you know, bad actors that have a moderate level of sophistication to be able to do, and obviously the impact to that community, you know, could be bad. But if we, if we take a look at it, you know, something that is, you know, probably touches all of us even a little bit more, you know, they're, all banks have ATM networks and these ATM networks, they, you know, they put a lot of cybersecurity on. They probably have like an EDR on there. They have a lot of monitoring. Maybe they have, um, you know, micro segmentation of ATM machines and, you know, people that are monitoring this. You know, we've gone into being proactive, gone into some of these networks, run some very simple, you know, tests against, you know, the effectiveness of their security uh, controls that they bought, they paid for. And what we found is we could compromise 300 ATM machines in seconds. And it was largely because of misconfigurations of the infrastructure that people bought and owned. And that, that really is our biggest, I'd say, threat is that we buy lots of capability, whether it's security or networking or whatever it might be. And the human error of misconfiguring it to the best possible configuration in order to interdict or to thwart, you know, whatever the nefarious uh, objectives of the adversary are. What do your what What do you think about? You know, I have I've had a lot of pen testers on the show, and I've had um, some ethical hackers on the show. Do you think that um, most how much pen testing and how much of that do you think some of these large companies are actively making sure they're continually doing just to um, make sure that they're, they are safe? Yeah, great question. So the good news is I, I think that organizations over the last five years have been spending a lot more money in order to have what I call situational awareness and visibility into the effectiveness of their spend. I mean, you know, in, on the IT side of the house, um, we have an SLA, it's called five nines. My network will be up 99.99% of the time, right? Um, if it's not, I'm not in my SLA and, you know, the CIO doesn't get a bonus or somebody gets fired. But we don't have an SLA in cybersecurity. It, it baffles me. It drives me nuts, quite frankly. Like, why don't I have an SLA on my firewall or an SLA on my EDR? You know, because I, I spend a lot of uh, money on these two disparate capabilities. And that money isn't just the technology, it's people and all those other things. So I think our first problem, um, and I'll come back to the pen test thing here in a second, is that we don't have SLAs in cybersecurity. And I predict over the next couple of years, you're gonna see cybersecurity look a lot more like IT, ITIL with a management framework with SLAs and things like that. Because if I was a board of director, that's what I would demand. Now on the pen test subject, um, the good news is uh, more and more people are using pen tests as a way to identify uh, gaps or misconfigurations um, in the cybersecurity and IT investments that they've made. But the fundamental problem um, is scale. Um, there's a very large bank uh, that spends $6 million a year on pen testing, 3 million internally, 3 million externally. They bring in external pen testers because their internal team left alone will just do the same thing over and over again. They're bringing in external pen testers. They bring more tips and tricks, new things to the table to make sure they get some level of diversity of 
of testing in the portfolio for that year. But even with that spend, they can only test 1% of the global topology per year, a month or 12% per year. And what you have to ask yourself uh, is two things about that 12%. Number one, once they test something and you have results and somebody fixes it, do they ever go back and retest it? They don't, because they're busy moving on to the next objective. The second thing is, do you think 12% a year is enough? Or do you think adversaries are testing you um, much more uh, frequently than that? And the reality is 12% is not enough. The stated objective of this bank is 40%, but they can't get to it with just humans. They have to introduce some level of automation that's better than ad hoc, if that makes sense. So going back to um, focusing on the topic and, you know, being proactive instead of reactive, which of course is what everyone would want. Is that even possible? And what, let's talk about that a little bit. And some of you, from your expertise, how do you become proactive? Say you are a large, you know, American Express or a Bank of America, or maybe, you know, um, you know, a railroad company, you know, a pipeline, you know, how are you going to become more proactive in it? And I imagine, you know, the hack of the pipeline did, you know, scare a lot of people to say, hey, this is, you know, we had lines and lines of people for days trying to get gas. So um, that, that I, I, and that was already a few years ago. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. Like American um, attention span is pretty short. Yeah. You know? We like to use the Colonial Pipeline and Target as analogies of sins in the past, but we continue to, you know, perpetrate those sins today. Um, so I'm going to start uh, somewhere where you, you and the listeners may not expect. This is actually not a technology issue. This is a people issue. Um, my background and expertise isn't actually cybersecurity. It's management of plan change. And the, the fundamental issue that we have today from a cyber defensive operational perspective is a people and organizational problem. Um, we continue to solve the problems of yesterday organizationally versus future-proofing our operations for where we need to be in five years. Very, very rarely does a cybersecurity organization get together and say, hey, what's our five-year vision? How are we going to innovate uh, you know, now to make sure we're future-proof five years from now? Um, we're so busy reactive to the point of your question about dealing with the threat of yesterday that, that we're not thinking about not the technologies we deploy, but the processes that we deploy and or employ uh, in order to uh, allow the organization to execute with something you'll probably remember from your military days called the OODA loop, the ability to observe, orientate, decide, and act, and spin this loop faster than the adversary. And we always say in cyber, the adversary has to be right once. You know, you have to be right all the time. And it's our it's our decision uh, decision support systems that are and processes behind those that are causing us the biggest pain and suffering right now. So, Break that down a little bit, what you just okay. said, because I do have a very large audience on the and security for all, and they do tune in. You know, my LinkedIn 
the people that, because we'll get a lot of people that watch this, you know, afterwards, but for my people that have no idea what you just said, can you kind of put that right. in layman's term for them? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. So, so in, in large enterprises, there's a lot of staff functional areas. You have people that are responsible for firewalls. You have people that are responsible for EDR. You have people in SecOps responsible for the SIM. You may have detection engineering. You may have security architects. You may have all these different roles that are doing things. And largely, um, based on my experience, uh, people are doing things in rice balls. And I'm going to give you an example. So um, many, many corporations in America and throughout the globe are buying something called E5 right now. So as you know, um, the pandemic spurred a transformational uh, terror around cloud adoption. Most organizations uh, adopted a cloud-first strategy. What does that have to do with cybersecurity, right? So the CIO buys E5, they're going to uh, start deploying Azure credits and everything else. And the CISO doesn't even know that when you buy E5 and Azure, there's 48 discrete security controls that you can deploy in Azure. And, and this will be my example. So let's say I'm a financial institution and I'm a security architect. I've got to design the cloud security for my financial institution. But as a security architect, I don't usually talk to my CTI, cyber threat intelligence team, to understand what the threats to the bank are. I'm not saying that doesn't always that that doesn't happen, but generally speaking, the security architect starts architecting to do you know Azure Cloud security, um, and if they talk to the CTI team, they would understand that Fin6, which is a you know a, a advanced persistent threat group, is targeting the bank. And that of the 48 discrete security controls in Azure, 16 of them can interdict, block, or detect Fin6. So if that was a threat to the bank, wouldn't I architect those controls in first, right? And then after I architect those controls in, wouldn't I use a red team or attack IQ or whatever to validate that they actually implemented those controls uh, correctly? That's what we call a threat-informed defense. So the proactive security starts well before um, you know, you've already deployed a bunch of stuff. It starts during the architecture phase. And you know, I, I know this is a complex subject, and I'm just giving a quick example. But Kim, does that does that start to make sense a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that was a good explanation of breaking it down so um, everyone listening can understand or at least try to understand. But what are you know what are some examples that you can give us that where you've went in maybe and helped advise on how to be more proactive than reactive and what kind of results are you seeing and what kind of advice are you giving? Well, that's a good question. So look. Um, you know, every organization, enterprise organization, invests in the same kit. They all have EDR, they all have antivirus, they all have firewalls, they all have IDSs, they all have proxies, they all have DLP. Everybody's got the same kit, right? Now, they may have more of it or less of it. They may have one vendor or another vendor, but they bought it all for the same reason. And, you know, uh, if you're familiar with the Verizon DBIR report, data, data breach investigative report. Verizon puts out this report every single year. Um, if 
for the audience. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's a great resource uh, to learn a lot. But what it does is it catalogs all of the breaches from the previous year and goes into some great detail uh, from an analytics perspective about these breaches, the similarities, kind of what went wrong, a lot of, a lot of great data in there that you know, organizations can learn from. But in, in 2019, they came out with a, a report and it was very illuminating to me. Um, and in that report, what they found is that 82% of all successful breaches, people had bought a security control, but had failed to configure it properly. And so the adversary circumvented it. It just wasn't configured right. And when that happens, we call that a protection failure. Protection failure is you bought something, but it didn't, um, it didn't actually do what it was supposed to do because you misconfigured it. Does that make sense, Kim? It does. So why am Verizon, just out of curiosity, what gives them, you know, I'm just curious instead of like a forester, or like sure. what makes them the expert to put that together? Uh, good question. And, and so, you know, Verizon has been doing this report and I just. Um, and I've seen their reports and, and I've yeah. gathered a lot of information from those well, reports when I've been prepping for shows. So I know what you're talking about, but I am curious about that. So, so. as a telecom, they're in a unique position. They provide a backbone to thousands and thousands of thousands of businesses, right? And so they're in a, a very, you know, AT&T could have done it. Orange Telecom in Europe could have done it. Other telecoms uh, could have done it. But Verizon just started doing this so many years ago. They're just in a, a very unique position to observe lots of different network traffic, to observe uh, things, and also to help their customers that uh, are Verizon customers on the business side um, from an incident response and, and such perspective. So they just have been able to aggregate as a function of their size, uh, just a massive amount of amazing data. So what is your primary role right now with what you're doing at it? Attack IQ and what's what's your mission? Yeah, thank you. So I, you know, as I articulated before, I'm I'm a mission centric person. So uh, I love our mission here at Attack IQ, which is to make the world a safer place for compute. And we do that in two different ways. We we obviously have a technology uh, that's called by Gartner breach and attack simulation. And so what we've done is we've taken the MITRE attack framework and fully operationalized that in our platform to do emulations, to mimic uh, you know, uh, uh, sophisticated attackers, uh, you know, doing what they do in customer environments. And in so doing so, measuring whether or not the customers have, have, have uh, optimally configured their security controls, peoples and processes, or identifying gaps where, you know, good example is maybe a customer doesn't have an EDR solution uh, deployed when we run a, a test, you know, they're not able to defeat it. But if they deploy an EDR, guess what? All of a sudden, they're successful in de uh, defeating that. And so we, we accomplished our mission of making the world a safer place for compute by helping make sure that customers are configuring uh, all the infrastructure, people, and processes they've vested in to the optimal configuration for their organization, if that makes sense. So how does a company, you know, that's trying to stay proactive and not reactive, which there's so many of them that are just, you know, 
trying to figure out what they're going to do after the breach has happened. When you have a million, you, you Google anything and there's a million vendor companies that pop up and, you know, it, it, we're almost overloaded. We are overloaded with information. So how do you even sort through that information and know where to beginning, know what's true information, what's false information. And, and I just thank God that's not my job. I mean, I know that's might be, the CISO's job, but the CISO has a team that's really doing the steps of the job before it gets up to the CISO. But what's your recommendation for companies that are just trying to figure it out? Maybe even a smaller company that's a startup that's going to has the potential to grow into a large company. Good question. And I want to separate out like the regulatory requirements because that's a whole nother bailiwick where people do a bunch of silly things because there's a regulatory requirement to do that. Um, security doesn't equal compliance and compliance doesn't equal security, which I think is a huge shame because we spend a lot of money on both sides of this fence. But uh, for, for the purpose of my comments now, let's take the risk side out, the regulatory side out, and we're just gonna talk about threat. And, and the reality is, I, I think um, back in 99, uh, when I was in DOD uh, with a couple other uh, pretty amazing individuals. We wrote a document called Defense in Depth. It was the very first document ever produced around taking a systems-based layered approach to cybersecurity. And we did that because of this emergent distributed client server architecture uh, that was being broadly deployed. Somewhere between 2001 and today, we lost, completely threw away a systems-based approach to owning and operating cybersecurity. And so today you end up with a bunch of rice bowls of detection engineering is over here and firewall management's over here and EDR's over here. And the, the sad thing is the bad guys and adversaries, they talk more than the same people inside of that security operations program. And so my first recommendation uh, to enterprise organizations is that um, your organizational structure is completely screwed up. You need to look a lot more like uh, SecOps or SecDevOps, even if you are a brick and mortar kind of security organization. And you have to bring a lot more systems-based collaboration of capabilities, knowing what the firewall is gonna detect or block. If it doesn't, then you know your EDR's got it. And if that doesn't work, you know your DLP is gonna stop the adversaries from exfiltrating something and stop treating everything as a separate capability and, and managing it as a system. In doing so then, um, you can actually save a lot of money uh, from a people person perspective and have better situational awareness and visibility into the effectiveness of the stack versus the effectiveness of just some specific control. And then if, if you do that, if you take that approach of, of managing the stack from a system space perspective, then you can assess much easier the effectiveness of that stack of capability that you've invested in. And that's obviously where somebody like an attack IQ or other, other folks come into play, if that makes sense. How relevant do you think it is when you go to certain, I won't really name them, um, there's some entities out there, and I'm not talking about Gartner, there, there's, 
maybe some magazines that are pretty substantial in the industry and they rate the companies out there. Do you think that is bias or, you know? Um, I'll rate them as it pertains to the effectiveness of those companies. Yeah, like there's some companies that'll do like the top 50. Yeah. These are the top 50 companies you should be looking at, you know, this oh, year. You know, honestly, a lot of those are pay to play. I think they're, yeah. I mean, um, Look, I, I think the, the best way to evaluate a technology is uh, reference calls with the customers that they got. I mean, you know, um, what looks good on paper and in a pre-sales motion POC um, may not look great a year later. And, and I think one of the big problems is that cybersecurity teams are not business people. They don't focus on business outcomes. You know, what, if I deploy this technology, what's the business outcome? Do I save money? Do I make money? Like, you know, that 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 hasn't been a, a huge focus of the cybersecurity profession. And and I do think that that has to factor in to how how cyber is looked at going forward um, because they're getting a, a different seat at the table from my perspective. They're, you know, you'll I think you'll see more CISOs sitting at the board, the board level going forward, if that makes sense. And you are right about the pay to play because I can't tell you how many emails I get all the time. Do you want to be in our magazine for top women, you know, in your industry? And it's always a fee and I would never pay, you know, invite me for free and that I'd be flattered. you know. But yeah, most of it is, you know, you are paying for those articles. But, you know, a lot of people take, you know, take that serious when they are you know, reading some of that stuff. But, you know, really one of the best ways is what I do. You know, I bring a lot of vendors together. You know, we have a lot of cybersecurity professionals that come out and they're able to go and talk to these vendors and find out what they're doing, see demos on site. And it's kind of a, you get to knock it out all in one day. That's on a smaller scale, or you could go out to an RSA or a black hat, but it's on a way larger scale. How much of that information are you going to retain? You know, um, and you definitely have to know what you're looking for when you go, you know, to some of these type of events. But, um, you know, is there any other things that you're seeing? You know, I know in the beginning, I, you know, we're, we we still have about five or six minutes, but um, we talk, you talked a little bit about, you know, we are this, this world, it's, we're not in a good place right now. What are some of the positive things? I always like to end the show on more of a yeah, positive absolutely. note, the positive things you're seeing in the industry that's happening. Well, I think, uh, you know, two things, um, one of them popped this week, but, you know, I, I really do appreciate uh, CISA and the work that CISA is doing. I think it's, um, it's phenomenal. And I think that they're ramping up to be able to help more, uh, but the CISA alerts, uh, for those that are not familiar with it, uh, just Google CISA.gov um, or DHS.gov and you can check it out. So I do think that's incredibly proactive and useful and helpful from our, our federal government. And then, you know, the White House published this week uh, some cybersecurity guidance as well, um, which I think will ultimately end up, uh, you know, around some policy. And I, I, I hope that, that that cybersecurity guidance also filters down into the government um, organizations that are responsible for helping um, America defend itself against adversaries as well, and that we see a greater 
partnership between government and industry in doing that. But so I, I'd say those two things I'm, I'm pretty excited about. I'm also um, optimistic about where the cybersecurity vendors are going. Um, I think we're seeing much more collaboration uh, between vendors. I think a great example of that would be the CTID or the Center for Threat Informed Defense, uh, which Attack IQ is a founding research partner for. That's where MITRE Attack lives. And you know, we're, we all come together, we all put hard dollars into the Center for Threat Informed Defense to work on uh, together, even if we're competitors, uh, increasing the state of the art and the state of the practice of threat informed defense and the minor attack framework, and then giving all that research back to the world as a public good. So, I, so that, you know, that's another big highlight, I think. And for many people in the audience, you may not be familiar with the CTID, Center for Threat Informed Defense by the MITRE organization. It's free, you can get in there. There's tons of great resources and training and things to help you take your cyber defensive operations up to the next level. And again, that's an industry consortium of vendors and companies working together in order to help everybody. And where again would uh, our audience find that? Because I'll definitely make sure that um, my team puts that link on there. Yeah, so if you, I, I don't have the link handy, but if you Google MITRE Corporation, so MITRE CTID, C-T-I-D, it will pop up at the top of your browser and you'll be able to see tons of great research projects and training and all kinds of resources for free for the public good. And that's a, a collaboration between the MITRE Corporation, um, technology vendors like myself, also great companies out there like Citibank and Healthcare America and Verizon, tons of great companies all working together uh, to help help each other. And um, do, really quick, because we're down to two minutes, do you, do you think that you are seeing better training in these organizations than you were maybe five years ago? Yeah, I do. And, I, and, and you know, we only have two minutes, but, you know, we talk about threat-informed defense, and, and one of the big kind of topical things is this concept of purple teaming which really represents red teams, blue teams, working together uh, in order to enhance cyber defenses for organizations. And so you're gonna see a lot more resources from CTID. Uh, if you go to Attack IQ Academy, which is our free training academy, 44,000 users around the world getting free advanced cybersecurity education and a lot of these things, uh, I think there's more and more and more available for us today. Well. Carl Wright, Chief Commercial Officer from Attack IQ. That was a very uh, fast 57 minutes. Thank you for sharing all your knowledge and your expertise and being on the show. We appreciate all your insight. We'll definitely have to have you back because we I feel like we just got to the tip of the iceberg. Thanks so much for being here. And everyone, um, thank you all for tuning in today. We're heading out to Detroit next week. Um, which we're excited. Our keynote speaker is going to be Dan Lorman, who's an ex-FBI. And we have Richard Steenen, who writes the Security Yearbook, which is another resource um, that um, is going to be available next week. And we just have a great event out in Detroit. Then I'll be back for our next week's show on Friday. So everyone, I hope that the sun is coming your way this weekend and you have a fabulous weekend. Stay safe, stay secure, and we'll see you next week. Thank you 
for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. Are you a cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? FutureCon Events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at futureconhq. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.